Oh, would you look at that? There's a new episode of the Blackcast on my phone, ready to play right now. Blatcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world. So kick back, get ready for quite possibly the longest one hour to perhaps the shortest two hours and 56 minutes of your life. And now, here's Christian Black. Welcome to the Blackcast. Excited to uh, be here with our guest. Uh, joining me now is Devin Gordon, who has written the most aptly titled Mets book I've ever read, and I've read quite a few. So many ways to lose the amazing true story of the New York Mets, the best, worst team in sports. Find the lie in that title. I can't. Devin, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you for having me on. It's great to talk to Mets fans. I love it. Yeah. Uh, you know, while he was spending uh, 16 years hosting a show at 1230 in the morning, Conan O'Brien always explained how whenever people gave him a compliment, people always had to explain why they were up so late and why they saw his show. And uh, I always feel like being a Mets fan, it's sort of the same way. You know, it's like you, you, you people want to know, how did this happen? Why did you do this to yourself? Why didn't you choose the easy road of being a Yankees fan? So uh, I'll start there, Devin. How and why did you do this to yourself? Well, I mean, well, there's two questions you're asking in one, right? There's the, how did I, why did I do this to myself as in becoming a Mets fan sure. to begin with, right? Which is the, which is the original sin here. And then there is the compounding sin of, of writing a book, which is a crazy thing to do in the first place. and something <laughs> I'd actively avoided for most of my writing career <laughs> sure. about the history of the Mets, which would mean, you know, literally going through like the, the, the toy chest of all of my childhood horror toys and, and bringing it all back out again. And, you know, I, I think part of it is because I love my team and I felt like something needed to be said about why we love teams, why we watch sports, what we enjoy about them in the minute um, that isn't winning because we never win, or at least we so rarely win yeah. that it becomes the, the grand exception that proves the rule. I feel like you have to win a little bit, a tiny bit, get that like smell of it in your nostrils in order to understand truly what it's like to lose the way we do. And um, that's special about the Mets. Like I feel like a lot of teams lose with no charm, no distinction, no flavor. Like your Detroit Lions, right? Your Seattle yeah. Mariners, these teams that are just kind of ordinary. And the Mets are 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 special 
in the way we lose because we lose, you know, in game seven of the 2006 NLCS because our best hitter watches three strikes go past him. We lose in an NLCS because of a walk off walk. We lose even when we're winning. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's a very unique phenomenon, right? Like lots of teams have heartbreaking playoff defeats, but they're not like ours. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so things like that, it just felt like there was something special about our team that had not been identified. And I wanted to make a defense of almost like a, you know, you were the, the Conan O'Brien thing is a perfect example because to me, it's almost like I'm answering my own question, right? Yeah. Why? Well, because of this, because this is special, this team, these stories, no one else has this stuff. This is awesome. Yeah. And I, I, you and I are, uh, if not exactly, we're very close to the same age. So I was 10 in 1986. My brother is five years older than me. So uh-huh. he's a Yankees fan because, you know, the, he was, a, sure, he was collecting was a, baseball cards in the late seventies. So that, that was, was uh, team, sure. yeah, that was, uh, what the, that was kind of the line of demarcation, but you know, we remember it was unheard of for somebody. So you wouldn't certainly take up the Yankees in the mid eighties, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, I, I didn't know anybody, you know I mean? It, it yeah. was, uh, all the kids not in my school. Them, yeah. Not if you had them thrust upon, unless you had them thrust upon right. you, exactly. right. If you inherited them, that's, I suppose that's acceptable, although shame on your family. <laughs> um, if you lived in the Bronx, obviously, you know, sure. you're going to root for the team that's in your backyard. I have no qualms with them. Um, but in the mid 80s, I'm sure you felt the same way, particularly in the early 80s. If you had a choice, if you were coming to this clean, why would you pick the Yankees? Like there was <laughs> everything to a little kid in the 80s. You know, if you were just looking them at them as a blank slate, would obviously go to the Mets. The colors were more fun. The team just had more spirit around them. They were on the upswing. The Yankees were all yelling at each other and angry, and the boss was the boss, and you couldn't have the hair and the mustache, and it was nobody was allowed to have fun, and it looked like their uniforms. They looked like they were in prison, and the Mets had a player named Strawberry, right? Yeah. And the Mets, you're you're eight years old, nine years old, ten years old. If you have a choice between the prison uniforms and the the orange and blue team with the strawberry guy on it, you're going to take the team with the strawberry guy on it. And that's what it was for me. It sounds like that's what it was for you. But if you were your brother's age, five years older, it's the reverse, right? You've got Thurman Munson and Reggie Jackson and all these colorful characters and the Yankees are winning everything. And the Mets are the worst team literally on the planet in all of sports, right? They're just a disaster. Yeah, so, no, my brother didn't care how tight Lee Mazzilli's pants were. Like that wasn't exactly. going to be over. Yeah. 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 And it, like if you're a boy at age eight, nine, or 10, the things that were appealing to, the, to those <laughs> particular Mets, and there were not a lot of things that were very appealing, <laughs> you know, certainly were appealing to a 10 year old boy who wanted to win some baseball games. The Mets were, those Mets are now the the version of the Mets that in some ways I'm the most curious about that I, that I, you know, if I had this book to do over again, I would go even deeper into, because I feel like that, that era of the Mets, the post Seaver pre, you know, juggernaut Mets was actually kind of a really fun moment. Sure. And uh, the uh, aptly named uh, William Metz with a Z, uh, he just uh, chimes in on Facebook that uh, Steinbrenner was scary. It was scary. Uh, I agree. And a, a and a criminal, you know, so let's not forget that. A criminal, that. a jerk. There was this, there, I mean, there really was this darkness around. There was an, a mean cravenness. This was a team that had 
you know, if you think about them in the context of what we know about dynasties and how they work, right? That Yankee team was in the post-dynastic crumbling phase where they're trying to bring in big stars, not homegrown stars, big stars from other teams to keep the thing moving, right? And some of them are working and some of them aren't. And Dave Winfield is really not working with the boss, right? <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, the, the, the sort of the emotional tenor of that team in ways that, you know, we're not going to appreciate as eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old was all negative. Even though, you know, that team, I think they were like, they were a second or third place team. They were terrible, right? They were, I think they were probably, if we look back, they're probably mid to high 80 wins. Am I right? Yeah, about that? And, and, and just like the, the Mets in the, the later part of the eighties, the mid to late eighties, if we had the, the more recent playoff structure, those Yankee teams would have been in the playoffs. They would have you know qualified for a wild card at least, you know? So and, yeah, well, and as you probably know about the Mets team. I mean, this is something that actually I discovered in the course of researching this. Like I knew, and I think most Mets fans know from that era, that if we were under the current playoff setup, you know, with all the teams in those Mets teams from 85 to 90, would have made the playoffs every year, which I yeah. think is something that most Mets fans either know or probably would have guessed. What I didn't realize is that it's even more bad luck, which is you don't even have to expand the playoff field. All you have to do is rearrange the league so that the alignment, the divisions are arranged the way they are now. And the Mets would have won the NL East every season. Which that really surprised me because you know that there's like an 80, eight, eight or eight, nine win team in yeah. there. Like 80. That team would have won the NL East if it was arranged the way the, the divisions are now because they would have won it with like 89 games. And so you do realize that some of this is bad luck. But at the same time, that Mets team went off the rails so much faster, I guess I'd say, than those Yankees teams did. Like, you know, they still stretched it out a little longer than we did. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, and and you reference uh, in in the book, uh, you know, just the, the it's well documented the demons that both Daryl and Doc had, and you know, yeah. you talk about the uh, the Judd Apatow uh, film he did where he talked to both of them. I I I watched that with my best friend, and I'm like, are we sure that Doc is still alive today? Just because of yeah, what that what he looked like in that, and I I hope he's you know, I mean, that's more than five years ago now, and he is still with us. So I I always hope whenever I see doc you know every once in a while he'll be at city field and they'll talk to him for a few minutes i always hope to see that he's doing a little bit better or something you know uh, and obviously that it was sort of inevitable that the that couldn't last and really like 1990 was kind of the the breaking point but i wanted to talk about uh, a couple of years before that you know so two years removed from the world series you then experience actual just crushing heartbreak in 1988 uh which is the loss to essentially yeah. the loss to oral hershiser uh, i don't want to i don't yeah. want to demean everybody in the lineup but <laughs> no it was pretty much him yeah <laughs> it was pretty yeah. much him yeah and I mean, uh that's uh you know I, I i was telling you before we started i i moved to los angeles 18 years ago and uh you know my uh, my in-laws uh, are, are Dodger fans, but uh, my wife was sort of indifferent and then her sister went to NYU. So somehow I come into this family and I make them both Mets fans. I'm like, what did you do? I'm like, I, I just can't, I can't oh, have it man. any other way. <laughs> I must really hate you now. I mean, that, that's, kind of. you know, I, I, I didn't actually spend that much time in a book on that playoff yeah. series. And, and, you know, and I don't know, don't know why, except for, you know, the usual excuse when I didn't spend too much time on something, it's that it was, 
60 years, right? Um, and I had yeah. to move fast through some things. Um, one of them, you know, there, there are a lot of details that sort of flick at it in the book. And you addressed one of them, which is that, and I think part of this may be one of the reasons why I didn't devote a huge chunk of the book to that, to that defeat, which is um, Oral Hershiser was pretty much the one and only, I mean, it was literally Oral Hershiser almost just, you know, with a little tiny bit of help from Mike Sosha and a little help from Kirk Gibson. It's like Oral Hershiser just, you know, in the way you've learned now, uh, uh, a, you know, a, 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 a single pitcher in a playoff situation can just sort of run the table on you right, like that. And he really did it to us that year. But I also think part of that 88 series in retrospect, we had lost that series before we took the field in one of those is it, it, it's, you know, it's sometimes we throw around ideas like that in, in sure, very yeah. already sort of literary storytelling ways. But I think in this particular case, it was really true. I mean, if you look at Dwight Gooden giving up that home run to Mike Sosha, and we're knowing everything that we know about Dwight Gooden in this moment, right? You know, Gary Carter has been asked about that moment and whether he thinks Dwight Gooden was high on the mound. And he doesn't say no, and he doesn't say yes. Right. He said, I, he said, I don't know. And, you know, when you think about it in those terms, what we were all witnessing is this sort of shocking you know, well, no, actually, <laughs> you know, Daryl Strawberry was unraveling and Dwight Gooden may have been literally high on cocaine on the mound. Like it's, you know, Bobby Ojeda had already snipped off the top of his finger. We had already traded away Kevin Mitchell. Like it's, you know, Keith and Gary were gone. It's or basically gone. It, it's what 86 foretold what happened in 88 all of all of the things that blew that 80 team of 88 team apart had already been baked in and then oral hershiser just kind of finished us off on the grill you know yeah it was just god yeah so by the way i missed game seven because i was at like a a middle school trip (laughs) very very i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing one of the things one of the things you uh you i I think you didn't mention in the book is uh johan santana's no hitter which yes. the St. Louis Post Dispatch was kind enough to put an asterisk uh, after the words "no hitter." Uh, I was on a plane when that happened, yeah. so I uh, did not even. In, I had no idea in real time. This wasn't uh, one of those planes where you could watch ESPN or anything on it. And uh, uh, actually, telling me that it happened is somebody who's in the chat. Uh, my friend John. He said his first taste of sports heartbreak was that 1988 series, uh, and uh, that's uh, John's. Uh, yeah, I guess my best friend. Me too. Yeah. He was the best man at my wedding, and uh, it's largely his fault that uh, I'm a Mets fan. So thank you for nothing, John, but I appreciate you being in here. He also has the uh, disadvantage of his parents moved from New York to Japan in October of 1986. So, uh, you know, getting to, uh, you know, not really even uh, enjoy the World Series. Um, I know uh, we've uh, we've got limited time, but uh, hopefully we get to uh, talk again somewhere in the near future. But one of the things I loved about the book was how much stuff I just had no idea about. And I've I've read a fair amount about the Mets in books and magazines and watched whatever. Um, I am shocked at how little I was aware of the team's original majority owner, Joan Whitney yes. Payson, as in the Whitney Museum. So that family. Yes. Uh, talk a little bit about her. Fascinating character and why you think history doesn't spend that much time talking about her. I'm so glad you asked. She is um, 
she's one of my own favorite sort of, I don't want to say discoveries because I had heard her name. I think a lot of Mets fans of a certain age had heard her name. We know who she is vaguely that she was the first owner of the Mets, but that's probably about it. All I knew is Mrs. Payson, by the way, and I didn't know the Joan Whitney part. And, you know, diving into the, the a book about the Mets history, this was not an, a story that I expected to find as rich as, as it became. I, I, she's, she is the first woman in American professional sports history to launch a franchise and to own one outright rather than inherit it. Two women owned pro sports franchises before Mrs. Mrs. Payson, but they inherited them from husbands, fathers, whatever. Um, this was her team. She made it happen. Um, she was the driving force behind it. Um, it exists because of her. Casey Stengel was hired by her. It is called the Mets because of her. And um, in many ways, the spirit of the team we all love that we identify with as Mets fans exists only because she had the genius, humility, wisdom, whatever you want to call it, to understand that the New York Mets in 1962 with the expansion draft talent pool that they've been given had no chance to be a good team. Not just in 1962, but probably for several years. And that because of that, they had to be fun. They had to have good spirit around them. Losing would get corrosive otherwise. It's one of the reasons why she hired Casey Stengel. It's one of the reasons why they brought back so many Dodgers and Giants stars, um, you know, aging though they were. But it's also sort of why they built the let's have fun spirit that sort of echoes with the team Roger Angel fell in love with from the very beginning that I think so many comedians have found draw them to the Mets rather than the Yankees when they have that coin flip choice to make. But of course, for a team like the Mets, when you have a history like Mrs. Payson that you should be extraordinarily proud of and screaming from the rooftops about, what else do you do but bury it, right? Because that's the Mets. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, some of this is sexism, right? Some of it is Fred Wilpon buys the team from her family and, you know, male owners, male sports, no one really cares that it's a woman. It's not that they don't care. It's, not that, it's that they don't really care either way. That what's special right. about it doesn't strike them as anything worth celebrating. So that's part of it. But I think the bigger part of it, ironically, is almost more silly and petty. Which is that, as everyone knows, Fred Wilpon is a huge Brooklyn Dodgers fan. In fact, we have all been given the sense over the many years that he would rather own the Brooklyn Dodgers than the New York Mets. And that he built... City Field is effectively a shrine to Ebbets Field, right down to naming it Jackie Robinson Rotunda at the entrance. Right. Um, in other words, the Mets come from the lineage of two departed teams, the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants. But Fred Wilpon only cares about one of those teams, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Mrs. Payson owned 1% of the New York Giants, and her favorite baseball player was Willie Mays. Her love for baseball began with the New York Giants, and it was her broken heart at the Giants moving to San Francisco that sort of lit the flame that resulted in the Mets existing as a franchise. It's also the reason, by the way, that Willie Mays ended up on the Mets like a decade later. She was she was determined, determined to get Willie Mays on her team. It took her a decade. She got him. <laughs> but because she was a Giants fan, because the Giants are part of her lineage, 
the Giants part of Mets history kind of got buried with her. And I think this actually sort of, I'm curious to hear, see if you agree, but I feel like Mets fans feel the Dodgers lineage very strongly and the Giants lineage or the Dodgers lineage very strongly. And the Giants lineage is very faint to us. Does that is that true to you? Yeah, no, I think me? that's uh, that's accurate. My uh, my grandparents on my mom's side were Brooklyn Dodgers fans, and so mm -hmm. they basically didn't follow baseball for four years. And one of the, in addition to my friend, right. my grandmother would always watch the the Mets on WOR. I would spend a, a week or two in the summer there, and so the Mets were always on when they were on channel nine for free, because there was no paying for cable in that house uh, until right. my grandfather heard about the history channel that changed everything. But anyway, that's <laughs> there. Yeah. but uh, I and, a sports channel or whatever it was called. Back yeah, then. It's yeah. Sports channel. Yeah, exactly. It was uh, that, that uh, you had to pay extra for that. You know, I mean, it, it, crazy to think about, you know, you had to pay extra for that channel. You had to pay extra for MTV, but anyway. Uh, so, yeah. And I think I actually, I, I would, I'm sure that you could find some, but it seems like the majority of people who end up rooting for the Mets, there is some fandom somewhere in their family. Maybe it goes back a, an extra generation to the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I don't, I don't know anybody that was, uh, you know, like their grandparents were New York Giants fans. Maybe it's all regional, but uh, yeah. And I think that that, that is the part that uh, really lives on. And, and you, you nailed it in the book. And I, I think we all knew the first time we went into city field, it was like, this place is beautiful, but why is it a memorial to a team that, that it lives 3000 miles away, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, he had to put in the hall of fame to, to assuage yeah. Mets fans who were so annoyed about it. And that hall of fame, by the way, is one of the only two places in city field where Mrs. Payson's name even appears. I mean, she's got a plaque in the hall yeah. of fame that's good at least they did that for her. that seems kind of the bare minimum given that she literally founded the franchise and named it um and she has there's an entrance somewhere i, th I can't remember if it's down the left field line or you know how all well is like the hodges entrance and the stangle yeah, sure. entrance etc cetera, etc cetera. she's got one of them but hers is like a door it's not like an entrance or a gate she has like a door right. and <laughs> you know like the book isn't meant to be an activist kind of thing but i i do wish maybe Steve Cohen would fix this a little bit. Like this is something that it would be so easy and obvious and great for the Mets to be proud of and to tell the story about. And I, you know, especially given, you know, some of the, 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 the uglier headlines that the Mets have been in the news for over the last off season. Um, this seems like a, you know, something really remarkable about our franchise that nobody knows. And we should be celebrating. No, I, I definitely agree. And uh, I, I would hope that, uh, you know, it, it casts more attention on her. Uh, one of the things that I definitely wanted to talk about that I also didn't know about uh, was from the low point when I believe that the team was largely being run by Mrs. Payson's nieces. Uh, and it was uh, Mr. Met being replaced by uh, the, of course, everybody knows about Metal the Mule. Uh, mule, I yes. had never seen the words metal, the mule appeal appear in anything. And I think in, you know, you mentioned Jeff Perlman's book about the bad guys one. He talks a lot about the seventies in there and, uh, and there, I don't remember metal, the mule showing up in that uh, talk about how metal, the mule is such a very Mets thing, but yet even so it's still forgotten about. <laughs> oh, metal, the mule metal, the mule is one of the, no joke is one of the, cornerstone foundational reasons that I wanted to write the book. It was, you know, when I'm sort of sketching out chapters to sort of 
think through whether this sort of theory of how I could tell a history of a franchise through colorful losing could work. The story of Metal the Mule was sort of instrumental. Like, you know, when I was explaining it to people, it was one of the key stories that I would use to sort of test out whether I thought the, the idea had resonance because it's just such a hilarious story that, you know, Mr. Met is one of the great mascots in sports. I mean, we don't have a lot of great things, but Mr. Met is great. Everyone loves Mr. Met. And Mrs. Payson's was actually her granddaughters, um, Bebe okay. and Whitney, um, who... Um, in 1979, you know, they were trying to shake things up and the team was terrible and they wanted to bring in new fans. And for some reason, they thought it would be a good idea to fire Mr. Met and replace him with a new mascot, right? You know, just marketing, shift things up, try something new. Um, and so they fired Mr. Met and replaced him with a mule named Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, with the idea being the mule would sort of symbolize grit, determination, you know, um, a lack of flesh, you know, substance over style. Um, and so in order to do that, you know, and, and, and for what they, 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 the, the animal that they decided to personify this was, was um, um, a broken down, effectively like garden slave that, that can't reproduce. Right. <laughs> like that's an animal with no future, literally yeah. an animal with no future. And the mule lasted not very long because the other thing that they discovered when you hire a mule is that unlike Mr. Met, Mr. Met basically works uh, not nine to five, but you know, Met, Mr. Met works what, like four to 11, I guess. Yeah. Right. Um, and then Mr. Met goes home and, uh, you know, you can fire Mr. Met. Mr. Met has to feed, house himself. Um, mules poop in center field and require 24 <laughs> seven care and feeding. And so it actually turned out that, that metal, the mule was more expensive than Mr. Matt. And that was the end of metal, the mule. But this, 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 is you know, this struck me as a very specifically messy way to lose, to flop, to, 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 you know, define lose however you want to define it. It doesn't necessarily have to mean wins and losses on the field. It, it, it's more about a state of mind or a state of existence, which is things going wrong, things going the opposite of what you planned. And to me, there was also a metaphor between Metal the Mule in those years and the franchise itself, right? That the Mets in that moment were sort of being treated like Metal the Mule, like this broken down thing that was just getting the bare minimum of care was being put out to pasture. Its owners didn't really want it. And eventually they came to their senses and they yeah. got rid of the mule. And, and, and the team was leaving shit out on the field every night. It, it, so. it, it was like, it was just like, to me, you know, first of all, it's just a funny story on its surface because course, they yeah. Mr. Met and replaced him with the mule. That's just funny. But when you start to dig into sort of the layers of it, you know, it's not like I'm trying to be this snooty Mr. Literary guy too, right? Because basically we're talking about cow poop, right? Or mule yeah. poop. You just, but you know, you, you do sort of walk into the metaphor like the Mets walking into cow poop, right? That's just sort of how it goes with the Mets, <laughs> you know? And, and so that, you know, it's like a chapter like that in the book, you know, of course the 62 Mets, even, you know, Mrs. Payson it, to me is a story of the Mets losing, right? That's the Mets yeah. losing. We are blowing something. That's a, that's a messy thing to do. And, but, you know, sort of on the more serious side, there are stories like Mackie Sasser, someone like Mets fans all know. That's not a very funny story of losing. That's a very sad story of losing, but it's a story of losing in a very specific and uniquely Metsy way. 
Yeah. And I think the book does a great job sort of uh, bringing us up to date on Mackie. I wasn't even aware, you know, of his, uh, his uh, coaching career and the fact that he finally seems to have gotten to the root of what the problem was. Yeah. And it sounds like he's happy, which is not where I think I saw that story going when I started the chapter. Uh, the book is uh, so many ways to lose the amazing true story of the New York Mets, the best worst team in sports. And uh, I uh, really plowed through this book. Uh, that makes it sound like it was a struggle. No, it was in the way of like, I, I couldn't really stop. And I made the mistake of staying up until one thirty last night, uh, reading about the 2006 Mets. Oh, so no. I could not sleep for about an hour no, afterwards because it was, for? well, cause that's just where I was in the book. And I'm like, Oh, maybe I'll finish it. And I'm like, all right, I got it. Yeah. No, 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 no. Just all those moments. But you know, there's, there's some great stuff in there. Like that you talk to Andy Chavez and just sort of reminding me that he should have been in the outfield in 2011 for the Texas Rangers, right. but he wasn't. Ron Washington made the the same mistake that he pulled, uh, he pulled a McNamara. He yeah, pulled a John McNamara. Same thing as John McNamara. And John uh, McNamara, yes. Yeah, and there's I don't know. There's a there's so much great stuff like that that uh, I I do hope we get to uh, talk again uh, in the future. There's one last thing I'll talk about is in the book you talk about how you know all these teams have these these crowning achievements of this great home run, that great home run. Uh, and you know, I, I was at a uh, city field for some of the home runs in the 2015 world series, but to me, the most significant aren't postseason playoff home runs. One of them, it transcends baseball. I was there on September 22nd, 2001 right. when Mike Piazza hits a home run off Steve Carsey. Uh, the only time I've cried in public as an adult is that moment. It was so very cathartic. And then the flip side is something really fun. The first baseball game I ever took my son to was in uh, May of 2016 in San Diego. <gasps> no and, way. Yeah, and we That's sat amazing. The, we sat with the seven line and Bartolo Colon hit a home run. And I honestly thought, I don't think I can ever take him to a game again because it will all be a letdown after this. Now he was only like a year and a half. So he doesn't remember it, but it was, uh, no, it was it's just printed. It's yeah. imprinted. It's yeah. imprinted. Oh, I don't know if, you know, like, I don't know if people watch this, but I don't know if people could see me covering my mouth as yeah. you're saying no, some people because, see, you know, yeah. It's, it's, it is, I was watching it live on TV, of course, which, you know, is under the circumstances, not, you know, not a sure thing, right? Like this was an early May game in San Diego and they were horrible. So it's not like, like if this, you know, if there's a game, you're just going to miss, this would be a game you just miss, (laughs) but I happened to be watching and my wife was in the room and if this is an ordinary game, I'm not really paying close attention, but I see what happens. And I screamed. I full on yeah. screamed. Like I screamed. <laughs> and, you know, it, that is one of the happiest moments of my baseball life. Of all the plays in Mets history that I have rewatched the footage of the most, you would think it would be Ray Knight's. Sure. Or maybe the Andy Chavez catch, just because which I've watched as much as anything to dissect it. No, it's even though it's only happened five years ago, it is far and away the Bartolo home run. Far and away, I've watched that probably 200 times. Yeah. I never get tired of it. Yeah. And and just uh, for me, being there and sitting in the section with the seven line in San Diego was it was better than being at the World Series just the season before and, you know, just random like eight run comebacks against the Yankees at Shea Stadium. You know, there's some great moments, but that one was just, you know, that was just such a huge 
everybody was just like, we can't believe what we just saw. You're not going to yeah, see something as crazy as that ever again. Never you know? seen it. And, and, and you know, that one of the reasons I actually, you know, there's a chapter in the book about, it's a short chapter, but there is a chapter about Bartolo's yes. home run in part because, you know, it, it, to me, it's a funny way of talking about losing because I really do think in many ways that is our biggest, most celebrated home run in franchise history, <laughs> which is crazy. That's crazy. It's one of the saddest things to even think and say aloud, but it makes me so proud. It's one of the reasons why I'm a Mets fan is like, I can't think of any other team having one of their you know, having their biggest franchise home run be on a meaningless regular season game against the bottom feeding team in May. It's just, that's a very, very messy thing. With, with a, with a 40 something rotund pitcher hitting a home run. You exactly. Know. Yeah. I mean, you know, who we spent $20 million on. Yeah. He was 41 <laughs> years old. It was like, I mean, he was nearly the guy who broke me for the Mets. When the Mets signed him, I was like, that's it. I can't take this anymore. Yeah, I, I, and then I within that five pitches, <laughs> within five pitches, I'm like, oh my God, I love this guy. He's well, amazing. The the thing that I'll I'll leave you with for uh, at least this part of our conversation is that in very Mets fan fashion, you know, I mentioned that I moved to Los Angeles uh, 18 years ago. My son started T-ball about a month ago. And, you know, we're in Los Angeles. And what do you think the names are of the teams? Uh, you know, there's there's a Dodgers, there's a Cubs. Oddly enough, there's a Raptors. But my luck would be that my son ends up on the Yankees. So now my kid has a Yankees jersey. He's got a hat. It's not a Yankees hat. It's a it's a B for Burbank where we live. But it's like his his jersey sure says Yankees on it. I'm like, really? So none of the other teams? And it's like his, you know, we, we signed up a little late. His best friend was on the Yankees. I'm like, all right, we're going to have to fix this uh, next year. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, don't, I think I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think how I would have to handle that. Maybe, I, maybe this will give us something to recollect, reconnect on. I'm mean, sure the Mets will give us another, are soon going to give us uh, some kind of hilarious reason to reconnect. Yeah. Ju just, just as soon as they can play like four games on consecutive days. Uh. I know. My gosh. I'm so, I'm so excited that it looks like we'll actually get another game in tonight as scheduled. How crazy. As scheduled. Yeah, I know. Well, uh, Devin Gordon, as I mentioned in the book, So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, The Best Worst Team in Sports. Obviously, it's uh, it's a fantastic book for Mets fans. But if you're curious and you just you don't understand why we are the way we are, you will definitely <laughs> learn it in this book. And you'll also appreciate stories like Metal the Mule. Well, uh, Devin, I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, there's so much more I would uh, love to get a chance to talk to you about uh, somewhere down the road. But I appreciate you taking the time. Well, glad to come back. We will. Uh, the Mets will not let us down for opportunities. <laughs> No, I don't think they will. Thanks so much. All right. Take it easy. <laughs> you too. Welcome back to the Black Cast, and welcome back to Devin Gordon, whose book, So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, The Best Worst Team in Sports, 
is so good that a lot of times when you do an interview, they will send you a digital copy for free. I'm actually going to buy this book with my own money because I want it on my shelf. Uh, you know, digital book, nowhere near as fun. It's like, it's like a new album comes out. Uh, I don't want to link to it. I want to be able to, you know, look at the album art. Yes. So uh, very excited to have the book, uh, you know, in, in my own hands, although I don't have it yet. But uh, Devin, thank you for uh, making some more time to uh, chat with me uh, to talk some more Mets. Of course, so many things have happened. It's only been a few weeks and so much, it's, so it, much has happened. It, it, in all honesty, uh, things really have happened. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I've, uh, I've, I've seen games at Wrigley Field and I've never seen the Mets play at Wrigley Field. And every year when they go into Wrigley, I'm usually like, oh, I'm really glad that I didn't, uh, I didn't go, especially this week when it's like 29 degrees and, and it had been snowing that afternoon. And then what was the, the final score yesterday? It was like 14 to four. Yeah, so I'm I like, so. yeah, I, I think I, so. <laughs> I think so. Look, I mean, there are a lot, there's a lot of, you know, it's an interesting Mets morning to be doing this conversation, right? Because the you can map your identity as a Mets fan pretty neatly along the spectrum of how you responded yeah. to the game last night. And, you know, even me as a Mets fan, I've gone through evolutions of that response, right? At, over the course of my life. Like there have been moments in my life where what happened last night would have, I would have had trouble falling asleep. And I'm at a point in my life now where the moment I saw those guys in the Mets dugout looking like they were dressed for the Iditarod, I was like, <laughs> I'm not putting any stock in anything that happens tonight. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's you know, oh, the people like oh, postseason you know, gets cold in the postseason. Yeah, but you do sort of inch gradually into it. Your body is ready. The Mets have had such a weird start to the season. Um, yeah. That, Which that it's is very, very hard. To, it's a very, it, it's a very Mets thing too, for us to, you know, we get the new owner and, oh my God, they really signed Francisco Landor to this huge deal for 10 years. I'm so excited for the season. Great. You're going to have to wait three days because uh, the, the Nats went to a COVID party and then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. And, and then, you and know, then, you're going to get snowed out in Colorado. Yep. And you're going to play through, you know, a t you know, play on a tundra in Wrigley Field every yeah. other day, by the way. It's not like any of these days, like forget getting rhythm, forget loosening your body, forget <laughs> easing into the season like everybody else is getting to do. This yeah. is, these are not conditions under which to judge the, the sort of consistent regular level. This is, this is a moment where things go up and down, right? This is, that's what happens when you're in a period like this, where you just have this all over the map thing where sometimes you're like, damn, this is a good team. And then you have <laughs> last night where you're like, oh my God, here we go again. <laughs> and, you know, there is the opposite end of the emotional spectrum. There is also the opposite end of the, let's say, sabermetric baseball spectrum that watches last night's game and says, I told you, I told yeah. you. This is the problem with this team. It's not that they're a bad defensive team. It's that they are a fantastic defensive team and a horrific defensive team. It just depends upon where you hit the ball. And like, yeah. that's a very messy way for this season to be. Just think about how, what, the, what we're gonna be seeing a lot of is what I'm realizing. We're gonna see a lot of Francisco Lindor, like James McCann, Francisco Lindor plays where we're like, Fuck. Yeah. Wow. 
Wow, we just won a game on that. And then we're going to see J.D. Davis crush a ball, drive in a run, and then give away like nine over the course <laughs> of the next two innings. Yeah, Utterly wreck a pitcher, right? Because that's one of the other reasons why you worry about bad defense, right? Is because that on he's just unraveling the game right and david peterson is just like he's he's having an amazing start and then 5 minutes later he's on the bench in tears yeah. and that's going to be our season folks because that was our team on the field it wasn't like we were missing thor and cookie carrasco we had all of our players out there and yeah. that's our team so you know i i do think that there's a reason to watch that game and get a little scared. Yeah, no, there, there's definitely a takeaway for it. And I think in general, as Mets fans, you go through uh, games like that uh, far more often than you want to. And yeah. a lot of times early in the season. And look, here's one of the fundamental differences of something we're going to talk about. Uh, the Mets have a, a bad game like that. Uh, realistically, the Yankees are off to a horrific start. Mm -hmm. uh, the the you know like they're they're they were the worst in the American League for the first time since 1998. Which, if you hate the Yankees uh, like I do, and I know you do because I read your book, uh, you, uh, you can celebrate that. But like, then you're also like 1998. Wait a minute, I don't know if I like that. Yeah, like no, that's too long. It's much yeah. too long. It's exactly yeah. Yeah, you and I as have the same. As soon as I heard that stat, and all the Mets fans were trumpeting about that, I'm like, wait a minute, this is not good. This is terrible. What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, now yeah. they're now I guess they were the worst in the American League as opposed to yeah. being in the basement of right. the AL East, right? But I don't it, know. The, how that went. The, the, the last time that, that, that happened for the Yankees, uh, Mike Piazza played for the Dodgers, you know? So like, it, cause okay. it was early 1998. You okay. Know? So okay. it's, I mean, it's, it's that long ago. It's before, it's before he became a Marlin superstar and then onto the Mets. Uh, but you know, and, and so the reason I bring that up though, not because I, I like to tweak anybody who might be rooting for the Yankees is there's legitimate talk about like, well, pretty sure we got to fire Aaron Boone. Like it's his fault. You know, uh, and, and to some degree it might be, but you know, you're hearing they just get like a pacemaker, <laughs> like <laughs> fire the guy yeah. with a bad heart. <laughs> By the way, did they, it's did his they, fault. That is such, did they it's learn like you're smelling from, weakness. <laughs> did they learn nothing from hiring Bucky Dent as a manager, by the way, where it's like, you don't just take the guy from your big walk-off uh, post-season win. You know, the, uh, you know, the, the fortunately the, you know, the Red Sox didn't hire Kevin Millar uh, right. as a manager, although that would have been entertaining press conferences. But uh, so, yeah, I think it's a, we are always in a wait and see mode because we have to, you know, right. uh, and uh, that's really what we're going to No, you're have. right. That's a good, that's a good point. I mean, I assumed that the Yankees, I, I haven't had this conversation with Yankee fans um, yet, um, even though I should, because it'd be really fun um, just to take the emotional temperature and see how frothing mad they are about Aaron Boone, the pacemaker, the whole, it's, it is such a Yankee trajectory. Like, right. Like if, if, if the boss himself were alive today, Aaron Boone would be out by now. He would like, he, he'd cut his heart out. He'd finish the job. Right. I don't know that that's going to happen with Aaron Boone. I guess all the baseball nerds say that the Yankees are going to turn it around. I don't know if they're still playing Gary Sanchez. I don't understand why I should take that team seriously. That guy is horrible. It's ridiculous yeah. that he's catcher for them. But anyway, um, and I'm a Mets fan talking like, anyway. Um, yeah. But like, where's the Mets? Look, I think it's no secret that there's a divide between the players' feelings about Luis Rojas 
and let's say Mets fans' feelings about Ruiz Rojas so far. And 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 as someone who I am usually very I am very very patient with managers, but just just because I feel like as a journalist I like to be humble in the face of what I don't know, and I know I don't know a lot, um, and so. I always take that route with the manager, but also I just think there's something unseemly about openly frothing for people's jobs. I just, yeah. I, I just don't like that. I don't like to do that. And I, and I don't like watching it and participating in it, especially since I think it's, you know, it is as wrong as often as is right, if not more. And there's usually a total lack of, hey, you know, if you fire the guy, you got to replace him with somebody. Yeah. And, and there's very rarely any, well, can we replace them with a better situation for thought? Now, that being said, I'm worried about Luis Rojas. I, I, there are strategic mistakes that are like J.D. Davis cannot play in games being pitched by Marcus Stroman and, 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 and David Peterson. Like he just, he can't like yeah, that, okay. that, that, that is, and maybe these are just things that we need to learn and figure out that I would, I mean, I don't know about Peterson cause he's new. I yeah, don't think I it's think rocket science to, to sit JD Davis against Marcus Stroman. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like that shouldn't take rocket science. And if you, and if you're instinctively not making those decisions over and over and over again, I'm, I'm, I'm worried. Like we see it's happening a weird amount very early in the season where I'm like, wow, that did not seem very smart. Like that right. was a clear blunder. Yeah. And anyway, don't, are, are, am I, uh, it sounds to me like you're not disagreeing and that's it. No, I'm not disagreeing. And uh, you know, I, I do tend to try and uh, give the manager a, a lot of slack. I'm fortunate we're both fortunate that we weren't put in the situation where we ever had to actively, you know, defend and root for Carlos Beltran as our manager. Uh, thankfully that, th thankfully his cheating ways. Oh, took God, can you of our hands. imagine what uh, I was talking myself into Carlos Beltran as the manager. Yeah. One of the most I, I, I didn't have enough time to actually talk myself into it, uh, which was great, uh, which is a great way to, uh, to segue into uh, what is, you know, I was thinking a lot, you know, when we were talking earlier, we talked about how our favorite Mets home runs uh, are things that aren't actually meaningful and game winning and you yeah. know, championship determining moments. And uh, a team that went very far is maybe not my absolute favorite Mets team because, you know, 86, I was 10 years old, you sure. know, so it's hard to, to, but I did love that 2016. And yes. I was, I was telling you that I uh, was, uh, I stayed up till 1.30 in the morning reading your book. And I just happened to be at the section of the 2006 Mets. So I did not go to sleep for about an hour and a half afterwards because just sort of reliving all of it. And it's like, oh yeah, just, you know, Dwayne or Sanchez not in the car accident. And yes. uh, what, what, you know, what if, uh, it, it, you know, if, if signing Pedro, uh, you know, he could have actually gone for the whole year and I'm like, oh yeah. yeah and Pedro, Duque Pedro was stays too. healthy. El yeah. Pedro stays too. healthy. El Duque stays healthy. And then it's just like, and like Steve Traxel pitched a game in the, the NLCS and, yep. and, and somehow, you know, that year, Oh no, uh, before I moved uh, to LA, I had a, a Mets uh, like a Sunday plan and somehow Steve Traxel pitched every Sunday and the games were always yes. like five hours. I know. I just... and, and I was just like, what, what, you know, I couldn't believe he was still on the team at that point. And yep. by the way, apparently he couldn't believe he was still on the team and he just yeah. liked it. So yeah. there's so many moments 
to just relive. And I'm like, oh, but that was still such a fun team, despite the way that still it ended. Such a fun team. I mean, it, that team, that was a really good team. Um, by the end of the season, though, we had suffered not not a cup, not a lot of injuries, but just a couple of really sort of gutting injuries if you're trying to win in the playoffs, right? We lost one too many starters. We lost Pedro and we lost El Duque. And you could survive if you lost maybe one of them with an offense yeah. like we had that year. But like you said, you lose two of them and now Steve Traxel is starting every Sunday and it's not good, right? Yeah. And and Duaner Sanchez, losing Duaner Sanchez, now it's Aaron Heilman. Not yeah. Sanchez. One of the jokes that I took out of the book, by the way, um, on the off chance that people read it and it like stayed in the library because I didn't want to feel badly about it years later, just in case <laughs> like people were reading it in 50 years, was yeah. I made a joke about Aaron Heilman saying that I could never root for a guy whose name sounded like a Nazi salute. <laughs> and, and, and I just thought, yeah, you know, I don't think anyone's going to read this book, but on the off chance, like in 50 years, like it's the book that Mets fans read and Errol Heilman's out there, like, like at 80 years old, be like, fuck that guy. You know, like I just, I couldn't. So anyway, I cut that joke, but I really, really felt that yeah. way. Like, or, or like, you know, his, his, his grandson finds it in the library and it's like, grandpa, you're in a book. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, to a Nazi, <laughs> a, a Mets book, Mets fan calls you a Nazi. Like, yeah. you know, I couldn't do that to him. So I cut it out. Sorry. My dog has joined, joined the, That's all right. the podcast down here. You can't see. Um, but like, that was a very, very unfortunate situation in which we needed every little edge pitching wise, because it was basically pitching yeah, that we need, could have to win that series. And, you know, think about game seven, we have a, a World Series caliber team. Who's starting for us? Oliver oh, Perez? Yeah. Oliver Perez! Who, and, but, way, but, still but in the major leagues, by the way. Right? He, Isn't he? I think he's he, the I believe one. so, yeah. 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 And, and, and he was he, great. He pitched so well in that <laughs> he game. Was great. And, by the way, I don't think he ever pitched well again, but he did I, pitch well in that game. And I'm like, you know what? Starter. I didn't have anything else to ask for Oliver Perez after that. I'm like, he did his part. He his, did his part. It's like weird. I can't step on the foul line. I'm like, whatever. That's fine. I have, I have a good friend um, from my Newsweek days who hated Oliver Perez, you know, I mean, because he was an incredibly frustrating pitcher. And even now is really rough on him. I'm like, the, it's like he had one job. He had one job when you come down to it, and he did yeah. it. And he did it. He did it. And that was so improbable. It's one of the messiest things about it, right, is that you have to go out there and start Oliver Perez for game seven with this team that yeah. you've been able to win a World Series and look like a World Series winner the whole season. You got Oliver Perez. And, of course, Metsy thing of all Metsy things. It's like Bobby Jones, right, in 2000, right? Remember Bobby Jones pitching us into the world? Who the – who the hell is Bobby Jones? He pitched and, like and, who, and who the hell is the other Bobby Jones, by the way? Right. <laughs> we have but both like, of them. We have both of them. Oh my God, I forgot about the other one. But like, you know, that's <laughs> that's what I mean. It's like that is a Mets way to almost pitch your way into the World Series. Yeah. Right. And and then it didn't happen. Yeah. And that season is also exciting for me because uh I I was uh fortunate 
in the beginning of September or 2006, I was lucky enough to be fired from a job I hated. Uh, and so I went back to New York for nice a wedding and, and I just stuck around and I, I saw that I saw them clinch against the Marlins. Uh, I had tickets to the uh, NLDS. So I, 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 I saw games one and two at Shea and then I flew home for game three uh, against the Dodgers. So I saw them sweep the Dodgers. Uh, and, Only foul ball know, I ever caught at a game was oh. – at that home game, the first game, game one against game the one of the NLCS. It was the game one, whatever the first home game was. It yeah, should, I guess the it first game one. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, game one. Only yeah. foul ball I ever. Well, nice. I wouldn't say caught, secured. Let's say I, the only foul ball I ever secured. I I I gave up on the one foul foul ball I ever had the best chance to get. It was mm. it was at Shea Stadium. It was a Sunday night, and uh, it, I was uh, somehow somebody accidentally must have given me tickets to the field level because I was down there. It was a Barry Bonds foul ball, and I'm like, if I want to fight this seven year old for this foul <laughs> ball, I could do it. But then I'm going to be that guy. So I'm going to be that out. guy. Yeah. yeah, I think that's probably the right move. Anyway. Yeah. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, so uh, so that and, you know, just the idea that then they were going to go under these big bad Cubs in the NLCS. Right. And then they just rolled the Cubs. So that was just like, oh, no, sorry. That's 2015. Sorry. Yes. I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm getting that. That's your- that's the other NLC, uh, the uh, NLDS that I went to. The, so the Mets have never lost an NLDS game that I went to because <laughs> I was in game. Are, the Mets are incredible in NLDSs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like, a, it's, you know, we have some, if, if we face the Braves, the Cardinals and the LCS, we have problems, but NLDS is man, we rock them. Like we are, yeah. we are sort of indestructible in them. I mean, it's interesting that like, you know, for me, the equivalent of that was, and I, I actually have noticed this in discussions with um, a lot of Mets fans. I wonder if you agree, but one thing that I noticed was that if they were, if you were asking a Mets fan for a favorite postseason that didn't end in the series like didn't end in 86 the one that they usually say is 99 is my experience just because that was such a fun wild bananas exciting loaded dramatic all these characters and you know we we really you know we put the fear of god into them and as you know there's nothing mets fans love more than making juggernauts feel like they're going to lose but not actually lose Right. Yeah, We're well, that's really why, good at that. That's why I thought it was interesting uh, when you wrote, uh, you have two chapters in the book that are titled Fuck the Yankees. Yes. <laughs> and uh, one of them is about the Subway series. And you really latched on to there's that, that period right before the series actually started. So after they yes. won the NLCS. And there was this idea of like, yeah, but but what if the Yankees do lose to the Mets? What if they lose? You know, just yeah. imagine. Yeah, and, it was so you know, great. And, and <laughs> so you know, their, their, their dynasty did run out of gas a year later. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that, uh, that, that it, to me is the definition of Mets fans where even in 2001, after just the, the terrible year, obviously the uh, awful events of September 11th, I was like, yeah, but I'm still not going to root for the Yankees. Yep. I, no. I can't root for the bad Let's guys. Let's go Diamondbacks. I, I was, yeah, I, I was like I the same way. I was like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> the, lo- the New York loyalty ends here, yeah, right was- here. <laughs> I understand that it would be very nice. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. The Yankees win another world series. No, whatever. But, An American team is going to win the World Series. It's good enough. <laughs> I don't care. Oh, I felt the same way. I yeah. did not care at all. But like, you know, that that moment, that period, it was like three or four days. And, you know, this team was ridiculous. I cannot believe we made it to the World Series with that team. You I still with, have my scorecard. It was insane. You mean with Benny Agbayani? <laughs> Benny Agbayani, Jay Payton, and Timo Perez. Timo Perez. That was our outfield. <laughs> 
That's yeah, what I know. started in the World Series. And it was, I mean, and look, it's, it didn't get that much more impressive around the infield. It's not, you know, like, yeah. you know, so it's, it was a team that had no business being in the World Series. And so we knew that we weren't going to win. Like, I don't care how, you know, backing into the playoffs the Yankees were, you know, yeah. I, I was not falling for this, but because there was this, they really did seem to be to the outside world in serious trouble. Like they were bad and they looked, they were all, they all seemed bored with each other. And, and Joe Torrey, there was like, it was not a theoretical thing that Joe Torrey would get fired on the eve of the playoffs of in a dynasty. Like that was not, yeah, it was not out of the realm of the possibility. And it was assumed that no matter what happened, this would be the end for Joe Torre. He was, he was going to be done. And that happened like three years. And so, so Yankee fans really were in this state of existential dread where, and I can sort of, if I put myself in their shoes, it gets even more fun because I can understand <laughs> feeling like, oh my God, we've just come through the greatest dynasty in modern baseball. Yeah. And this has been the most amazing thing in the world. It's been the dream of all baseball fans is to have your team be this good and win World Series like this and just and it's and wait, if it ends with the Mets? Yeah. The Mets <laughs> beating us, it's all gone. It's all gone because that will be how the story ends forever. Right? It doesn't matter. It's like you know, the first act and the second act where you win all those World Series doesn't matter because we are the heroes of the third act now. <laughs> That's right. And, and it's just, and that would have been so amazing. We knew it wasn't going to happen. Again, like Mets fans knew this wasn't going to happen. So it's only this period of time where we could enjoy it. As soon as the games began, we immediately went back to being the Mets and exactly how we thought it was going to go is how it went, like immediately. Yeah. And so... Those days, I just remember, and I had a good friend who was a Yankee fan, and he's generally an anxious guy. So, I mean, he was really tortured. Yeah. He was really, really tortured over this. This was his worst nightmare. He would have rather played anybody. He would have rather played his mother and father <laughs> than the Mets in the World Series. And I was just... And I was I enjoyed every minute of it because I'm yeah. a terrible person. I'm a terrible yeah. person. No, but that, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that it. series was such a foregone conclusion, the 2001 yes. series, that uh, I actually didn't watch game two because my friend's mother got these great Rangers tickets. I'm not even a huge hockey fan. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> wait, bother? What bother? Yeah. You know, so I'm like, great. And, and you know, it's like you could you could kind of see like the, the, the monitor had the World Series on. And you're like... Oh, uh, Piazza and uh, Clemens got into something. Anyway, I'll, yeah. I'm sure I'll hear all about it. Uh, <laughs> which, by the way, uh, I had no idea until I read your book about that interview. Uh, the ESPN guy in, uh, like, a local ESPN Las Vegas no guy. No one knew about it. Totally. No just, one knew about it. You know, I got no love for Roger Clemens, but it was shitty to both of them. What yeah. He did. You yeah. Know? Yeah. 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 No, he, no one knew about it because, well, first of all, if you weren't there to hear it, yeah, you wouldn't have heard it. Right. And you, you would have had to have been in the Las Vegas area listening to this particular sports radio station for this particular segment. And it wouldn't have it wouldn't have meant anything to you, wouldn't have meant anything to you because they you might have heard it and not known any of the subtext that made it actually right. really, really interesting. You might have been like, oh, I guess they're reconciled or whatever. Maybe there's bullshitting. Who cares? You know, like it yeah. wouldn't have sounded like anything. And in fact, like it was only the, the, the conversation 
I think was only noted in like one publication it was like the Daily News wrote about it the next day, but they didn't write about the Piazza of Clemens aspect of it. They only yeah. wrote about Clemens and steroids because that was the story at the time. And so, you know, there was no reason to have heard about it in the past. And, and Piazza had never told the story because he forgot. He, to- yeah. he just he totally forgot. I mean, like, and, and like, it was like, literally, like, it's not like I asked them about it because I had researched or something like that. We were just like bullshitting on them. We had had two very long conversations for the book. And the first time I didn't ask him about the Clemens thing. And, and yeah. not just because I didn't want to piss him off. I mean, I'd gotten the sense in the past that he doesn't have any real problem talking about it. This is, I'm bored of that subject. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I, I, I assumed he was bored of it. I knew I was bored of it. And so we had talked about a ton of other things. Um, and then the second time we just sort of drifted onto it somehow. And that's when it's just, you know, we just, it, it, it was a weird, it was a nice con. I really ended up liking him just because it was very late at night where he was, he was being very kind, talking for a long time. He was calling you from Italy, right? He was calling yeah. from Italy yeah. to shoot the shit about the Mets and, you know, which is a team that's still clearly very dear to him. And he was being very candid about himself. Like that's one of the things I came and came to love about him. And that came to be the backbone of that chapter somewhat unexpectedly was the degree to which Piazza was such a met. He, he bleeds, yeah. right? He, 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 he was the perfect star for us in that way. He has regrets. He's got a code of honor that he, that he obeyed, even though he understands the great expense that it had caused his reputation the, the hole in his career that never got filled, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Clemens is just this winning, un, you know, unreflective yeah. winning machine. And it just became so apparent over the course of that conversation that that's sort of the story of that series in many ways, the inevitability of the winning machine that we were up against in this sort of impossibly human team. You know, even though that was the superstar, Mike Piazza was this, the, the only inhuman part of that team was Mike Piazza, but even he was just this you know regular guy in some ways and we just sort of drifted into it and then we'd been talking about it for a while and he goes you know like i can't remember exact words like you know i just remembered this you know like this, this whole thing. i actually did this one time i did wow. meet him i think you know what actually i think it was i think i'm like have you ever seen him since like you know you're, you're athletes like you know yeah. you run across people with things and he was, I think the first thing he said was, well, the all-star game, right? Yeah. Because I had forgotten about that, right? And then we talked which, a little bit about that. Which Piazza caught Clemens. Caught the Clemens game. because Clemens and, was now on the Astros. And, and Clemens gave, which at that time, the Astros were a National League team, kids. Yeah. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Sorry. And, uh, and Clemens so got lit up. Exactly. He gave up like seven runs. And, I, and I'm just like, I remember watching that. I'm like. So Piazza calling pitches that uh, that he there knows were people who, there were actually people who thought that maybe Piazza was tipping pitches yeah. to the American League guys because Clemens got so humiliated by that performance he obviously insists otherwise I just think Clemens yeah. was getting washed up but um, yeah. and then sort of after that maybe it was just thinking is like did I ever see that fucker again um, <laughs> he hates Roger Clemens he hates him he hates him. And there will never be any forgiveness. Like he just, he has reached the conclusion that Roger Clemens is not a good person and he doesn't want to resolve this. He doesn't have anything. The same conclusion, the same conclusion most of us have. Yeah. I think he's not a good person. (laughs) I think Piazza looks back on in some, in sort of the same, I mean, I haven't heard from Piazza. I have no idea how he feels about the chapter, but I, I, I like to think based upon the way he described it, that he's at, he's at peace with the human person 
part of how he comported himself. Yeah. It eats at him because he is an athlete and he's the kind of OCD personality where things eat at him every day that he never won a ring. And because he's OCD, he will always wonder if doing something different, being someone he's not, would have gotten him the thing that he wants. That's 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 a very messy thing to think. Yeah, and I love that about him. I, re- I really loved that insight in that chapter, but it also makes you realize, look, they didn't have a chance in that series, but they yes. really would not yes. have had a chance in that series if Piazza had gotten himself no. thrown out in game two. No, you know, no, it was like, I mean, give me a break. Like it, that he was the only offensive prayer we yeah. had. If Like he was the only, I mean, you know, Robin Ventura was still, you know, he didn't have anywhere near the season. He'd had 99, but he was still a yeah. good hitter. Um, uh, but Todd I mean, Zeal was no John Oliver. was no John Oliver. Yeah. You know, Elgato Alfonso was a nice hitter. Yeah. Um, but Ray Ordonez was in that line, you know, we had yeah. several, several automatic outs in that lineup. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, you can't take Piazza out of that lineup and try yeah. to beat the dynastic Yankees. Like, it's just not going to happen. And so it wasn't going to happen, period. No, but and, you you really would not have had a chance. And I, I think to just realize that, you know, the, that, that weight on his shoulders, which was much more important. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've read a lot of uh, athlete. I've read a lot of Met books. Uh, The Piazza's biography. I really liked him in it. And he's fun. uh, Yeah. It's the opposite. Funny. It's the opposite of reading Lenny Dykstra's book. (laughs) Yeah. Which is just nonsense. Piazza is very, very funny and self-reflective, but then, you know, I, you know, in case you guys, in case people don't know what we're talking about, there was this moment in, you know, uh, after the Michael Jordan celebrity golf tournament in 2011, I believe it was, where, you know, Clemens and Piazza had both played the tournament before. They both had other partners and they had other partners on this round, too. So they, you know, to the extent that they had been in each other's presence, they had been at the tournament before. They were aware that each other was there. After Piazza's round, he comes over and, and an ESPN radio producer says, hey, you know, you want to come over and chat. And, and this is a charity event. So Piazza comes and sits down. And the 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 producer immediately the the host of the radio show immediately brings up Clemens because Clemens yeah. is at the tournament, and of course when you bring up Roger Clemens and Mike to Mike Piazza as the host says your mind immediately goes to the World Series and the Broken Bat and all that stuff and Piazza's annoyed but being good good natured about it because you know whatever it's a charity yeah, thing. yeah you you picked up on he has a line at one point he's like oh yeah i forgot about that i forgot about that you <laughs> yeah. know and piazza's <laughs> so dry like he's a very very funny guy and he has this sort of gift he also has like you know the great comic timing like really funny comic timing like he just gets his lines in at exactly yeah. the right moment and in the right tone and so it's really funny to listen to him and and then the host says, oh, well, you know, here's Roger Clemens right now. He's walking over here. Why don't we just have him sit down right next to you? And, you know, Piazza hates Clemens. They haven't reconciled. They haven't spoken. They have not had any interaction since the All-Star game when they tried to avoid each other as much as possible. And now on live radio, he is about to have a segment with Roger Clemens sitting next to him during which he is going to have to pretend that he doesn't hate this guy's guts. Yeah. And he thought that it was a joke. And then he literally didn't realize that it was serious until Clemens sat down next to him. And uh, he was like, 
how did this happen? And that's what he said. That's what he told me is like, like, you know, he can't really like, he's kind of fuzzy on the first few minutes of the conversation because he, he said the whole time, all I was thinking was, how did they set me up like this? Yeah. How did they get me? How, how did this happen? Yeah, did they trap right. me into all of this? Like, did they con <laughs> me in? And did Clemens know? And then he comes over, like, how did, how did this happen? And, and, you know, and, and so what's amazing is if you go back and listen to the audio and it is, you can find it on YouTube. Like you can just listen to the audio. Um, he's doing a pretty good job holding his own and not making it like, it's such a more interesting audio when you know that there's a subtext here, yeah. which is that even though it seems like it's tranquil and they're just bullshitting about basic baseball stuff underneath, like Clemens <laughs> is lying through his teeth and Piazza wants to flip the table and the host is like, you know, like a, like an ambulance chaser who just yeah. landed the biggest fish of, you know, landed the biggest traffic wreck of his life. It's just amazing to re-listen to once you know what's really going on. Yeah. And, and uh, the fact that that, uh, that, that, that audio is, did not get picked up as much. And the fact that that host, by the way, didn't get, I don't know if Fox sports one, you know, somebody didn't right. pick him up, you know, because it's like, if you, if you, engineer that you should you should get a national job and out of that it and man was tucker carlson yeah <laughs> <laughs> he he let he let the bow tie out a little bit um i know you only have a couple more minutes uh one thing i wanted to make sure we talked yeah. about uh was uh when we spoke the first time it was the day that bernie madoff died and i right. commemorated that occasion on twitter by saying that i was going to start believing in hell that day because my sincere hope was that he would burn in it now I can't believe sort of that, you know, yes, everybody knows that uh, Bernie Madoff's a terrible person. I remember there was this TV movie with Richard Dreyfuss where I'm like, wait, he seems likable in this. This does not seem to be the way to tell this story. Yeah. You know, Cuba Gooding Jr. plays OJ and you're going to feel the same about OJ as you did before you watched that. You know, if you loved OJ, you still loved him. But if you didn't, he didn't, he didn't win you didn't over. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is obviously a terrible guy and destroyed people's lives. And the reason that this comes up now, though, is because of the impact he had on the Mets and the best instance of just how terrible he was is that Fred Wilpon was like a close friend of his and he destroyed his financial empire and the Mets. I can't believe that they ever came out of it. And I mean, it was obviously it was tough those few years where, you know, Fred Wilpon didn't have any money left, but I wanted you to kind of talk about, obviously you were covering that in real time. I, I assume yeah. you were writing about it as it was happening, but then also writing about it now in the book, kind of looking back on the time and the fact that the fact that 2015, where they went to the world series was able to happen after that, you know, that it wasn't like 15 years before they could uh, put anything together. You know, look, if you really wanted to get this narrative wrong, you could Disneyfy this and make the Wilpons the heroes with a triumphant, sure. you know what I mean? Um, and, I, and I will say that like in the research for this book, the, 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 the Madoff thing is the one time that I do feel genuinely bad, not just for the sure. Wilpons, but particularly for Jeff, because Jeff is actually the real sad case here. Fred Wilpon's friendship with Bernie Madoff has always been a little overblown. They had a very, very in a very uh, uh, intimate, I guess I would say, business friendship. Sure. Um, but their personalities, they were very different. Bernie didn't really even particularly like baseball. Um, you know, Fred was a schmoozer, a real estate guy, and very well-liked and a really decent guy, even though, you know, a dummy in some ways. <laughs> sure. Madoff was like a quant. 
right? Just like obviously we know he was he was the devil incarnate now. So they were, yeah. you know, they were, and and actively so. Um, Bernie Madoff's son, the one who subsequently killed himself, correct? Yeah, and Jeff Wilpon were extremely close, like incre- like blood brother close, wow. very 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 close. Jeff is how Fred met Bernie. That's how the families got together is through their sons, right? And and so in some ways there is this sort of as 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 much of a schmuck as Jeff Wilpon unfortunately is, there is this sort of human tragedy that no yeah. one should have to live through here. Right? Absolutely. This was yeah. his best friend. He introduced his father to the guy that ended up wrecking the fortune. And it wasn't like he was introducing the fathers because he had he was vouching for the guy. They were it was his son. And his son was a good guy. And they were good friends with, you know, like so it was like it was a it was an innocent introduction that that ruined everyone. And and okay, you know, that's you know, that's horrible. On a human level, I feel terrible for the guy. But um they were the Wilpons at the same yeah. time. Right. And and so, you know, what happened over the next few years and Bobby Bonilla Day just becoming a holiday because of the Royal Celta that, you know, um, it, like so many things with the Mets, the, the story gets both more tragic comic, uh, the, the deeper you get. It's always like, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you, you can feel bad for Fred Wilpon in terms of what it did just to his business empire. But then there's, there's one side in there where you're talking about that the day he finds out his, his daughter yes. had found out she was getting into a college and they had this big dinner planned and he's like, well, I'm not going to ruin everybody. You know, I'm not going to ruin my daughter's good day. And I'm like, so and it's like, okay, so that's a good guy right there who isn't like, well, fuck it. We're not having dinner now because, uh, yeah, our lives are yeah, over. yeah. I got it. Like, you know, one thing in terms of that, that was important to me in writing the book is I just don't like it when, when there are sort of three one dimensional villains because it's yeah. so rarely true. I mean, even the, the granddaughters of Mrs. Payson, who, you know, helped run the team into the ground in the late seventies were also the people who had the inspiration to, to introduce a lot of ethnic food into Shea stadium in the vendings areas, because it turns out there were a lot of ethnic fans showing up to watch the Mets in the late seventies. And they thought it would be a good thing to make them feel welcome at their stadium, which in two ways probably did more for the experience of going to a Mets game than almost anything that Nelson Doubleday or maybe even Fred Wilpon ever did. Right. Fred Wilpon wants us to go to Dodgers games. So, you know, it, it is important to me to, to remind people that Fred Wilpon is a dunce of an owner and did a lot of dummy, 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 dummy things, but it is important that he gets his due as a human being. And even that Jeff Wilpon gets his due as a human being for all of his many, many limitations. You know, yeah, in not. the book you talk about actually talking to Jeff for like twenty minutes at a stretch, and you know it 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 definitely humanizes these uh, these two guys who I don't have particularly uh, warm feelings for as a Mets fan, but you know it you you don't want any of this to happen to anyone. On obviously, yeah, I don't have warm feelings for them either, but I can my warm feelings are fair and more justified if I if they if I if I treat them fairly, you know. Yeah. But it's no, well, uh, Devin, uh, it's uh, always it always flies by when we chat, uh, and uh, the uh, the book will fly by if uh, you read it uh, as I did. Just don't stay up to if you're a Mets fan. Don't stay up till one thirty in the morning reading about 
you know, if you're going to stay up At to one thirty in the morning, Beltran chapter. Don't read. Yeah, it's going to say read about read about the '86 Mets later. Sure, like, that'll yeah. make you feel good. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the book is so many ways to lose the amazing true story of the New York Mets, the best worst team in sports. Uh, and uh, you're on Twitter. Is it Devin Gordon X or are there That's two it. X? Okay, it's Devin X. Gordon X. Yeah. So, uh, it, so please uh, follow him, and uh, we can continue to talk Mets throughout the season. Uh, I uh, do really appreciate you uh, taking some more time to chat with me, and uh, you won't be off the hook because I'm sure this series, this season, uh, is going to go great, and we're going to have nothing to complain about. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I'm ready and here whenever you need me. <laughs> All right, thanks so much, Devin Gordon. I really appreciate it, and uh, thank you to uh, everybody who uh, joined us in the live chat. And uh, make sure that uh, you join us on Monday for our special Academy Awards wrap-up show. Myself and Christian Toto of Hollywood and Toto. We will be uh, reacting to the award show itself, maybe less so the movies. I'm going to see if I can watch a couple of them before then. But uh, that'll be Monday. Also, I believe at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 a.m. Pacific time. That'll be uh, myself and Christian Toto uh, recapping the Academy Awards. Uh, a little bit of a different show than uh, Talking Mets with Devin Gordon. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I, I think that even if you're not a Mets fan, you can really appreciate when people have this sort of passion uh, for uh, for anything in their life. Even if you're not a sports fan, uh, hopefully uh, you enjoy the conversation. And I thank each and every one of you. And uh, I thank uh, Dominicus Saxon for pointing out that it was a great interview. Thank you, sir. Uh, always appreciated. And thank you for your support, as our friends at Bartles and James would always say. Uh, in any case, that is all the time we have for today. But we will see you next time on The Blackcast. <laughs>